0: started this I never said that series. Things God never said, but but we like to tell each other. Uh, pithy little cliches and proverbs, things that flow easily from us uh, that we can even, as, as believers, we can even attribute those to, I think that's in the Bible somewhere, or I believe God said that at one point, and he hears us and he's like, hey, I never said that. We started with follow your heart. I mean, you talk about a, a, a phrase that could almost be the religion of of America in 2016. It's in our, it's in our art, our music. It's, it's, it's on TV. It's in our films. Follow your heart. God never said that. What he said was your heart, Jeremiah chapter 17, is a deceiver. Don't trust it. He said, lead your heart back to me. I've come to replace that heart of stone in you and give you a heart of flesh. And we, we went to Psalm 119 and saw different ways god has for us to lead our hearts back to him instead of following leading our hearts we talked about this phrase that we use when man we don't know what to say someone has lost a child or lost a loved one going through an amazingly hard experience and somehow we end up saying something like god will never give you more than you can handle and we tend to say that at the moment when clearly he has given them more than they can handle isn't that weird well, we saw in Scripture what the Bible teaches us is that you can pretty much be guaranteed you're going to get more than you can handle. You are. If we only got what we could handle, we would not feel a need for God. We went to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and saw when Paul had more than he can handle. That's when Jesus shared those words that Chuck said over to this morning. My power's made perfect in your weakness. Um, We need to turn to God We need to have situations We don't want them, we don't look for them But when we have more than we can handle That's when we we know we have to depend on God And so we talked about leaning into His presence Into his, His people Into His purpose And finally we talked about leaning into His eternal perspective And then last week We talked about that phrase that I've heard That probably anyone who's ever done much counseling Has heard before Someone will tell you something like You know I think God just wants me to be happy. It's not in the Bible, okay? God has something bigger than that for you and I. It's not that God wants you to be unhappy. It's not that. But God wants you to be His. He wants you to be His. And everything works. Romans eight twenty eight. Everything is at work in the world. The good, the bad, the ugly is at work according to God's plan, conforming me into the image of Jesus, making me more and more His. Because of that, I'm more than a conqueror. I'm more than a conqueror through His love. So we've talked about those things already. And that is kind of the problem with a lot of the uplifting things we share with one another is God never said it. And so these Christian cliches might lift someone's spirits up, but at the same time, since they are not accurate, they may take them away from God and His will for someone's life. They may get them off track, off course. Well, Sabine Moreau knows about getting off course. You probably haven't heard her story, true story. She is from Belgium. Uh, She was needing to leave her town and make the 90-mile drive to Brussels to pick up a friend of hers. So she got in her car, turned on her GPS, and if you've relied on GPS as much as I tend to rely on GPS, every once in a while, it gives you some kooky directions. Well, she got some kooky directions, but she followed them to the letter and kind of didn't work out well for her. She ended up, instead of making that 90-mile journey to Brussels, she ended up crossing five international borders. She began seeing signs in French, then German, then finally the road signs were in Croatian. She stopped to nap a couple of times. She stopped to gas up a couple of times. She stopped to eat a couple of times. She finally found herself in the capital of Croatia, Zagreb, 1,000 miles away from Brussels. Her son was getting worried about her and actually contacted the authorities who, by tracking her debit card, were able to find out where she was. Now... Honestly, I'm not sure how she managed to get that off track. I think most of us would have stopped for directions or turned around at some point and said, this can't be right, but she did. And part of the problem was obviously she was getting some bad directions from that little voice over her GPS. It was not keeping her on course. I've had that happen before. You've probably had that happen before, but hopefully it wasn't a 1,000-mile off-course mistake. Now... What I want us to do is think about the Lord for a moment And think about the amazing gift of salvation that he has for us I've always found it interesting that the Bible, that Jesus really liked to use navigational language GPS kind of language when it comes to our salvation That word lost is used over and over again that people who are far from God, people who are not tracking with God, people who are not um, living out his salvation, that they are lost. Jesus used that word several times. One time in Luke 19.10, remember he's with this, this guy named Zacchaeus, and when salvation comes to Zacchaeus, Jesus says in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost and so a lot of folks at one time or another have found ourselves lost and you know the faulty life gps it may be that you're following your heart and your heart told you to go to that person or that thing or that place and you find out later on that was not where God wanted me to go. It may be the GPS that you're following is some pretty sketchy advice that you got from somebody you thought you could rely on that's gotten you off course. Well, Jesus, know this. Jesus wants lost people to find out how to get home to God. How to get home to God. Now, when it comes to salvation, and this is kind of the good news part of the sermon This morning, when it comes to salvation, I believe that most Christian tribes, most Christian denominations, most of us agree on the central truth about salvation. Here it is on your outline this morning it's this that salvation comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That is a big thing. That we mostly, for the most part in Christianity, we mostly agree on, and that's good because that is core right there. Salvation comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. So, this is a recognition that we share. In the Christian world, that we and that people are not going to find salvation based on how good we are. Okay? That we are not going to find salvation because of our performance, because of our ability to get everything right. Our salvation is based on Jesus on the fact he got everything right and that he gave himself for us on the cross. Our salvation is based on that. And so it is by grace. The Greek word here is kadis. It can be translated by grace or by gift. It is from God. It is a present from God. And we accept this priceless gift of salvation by coming to Jesus in faith. All right? Now, it goes without saying Salvation is important. It's important in the Bible. Um, it is important because it says to us that we have hope beyond the grave. If you've ever mourned the loss of someone you care about, if you, then you can say, because of Jesus and what he accomplished in his resurrection, I have hope beyond the grave. I believe in eternal life with God. It's important because Jesus spent a great deal of time in his ministry and in his message... Um, revealing more about salvation and that God wants everyone to be saved. So yeah, salvation is kind of kind of a big deal. And the most important truth about it is that it comes to us by grace. It is not earned. It is not something that we are able to work for and merit. We are saved based on Jesus and what he accomplished. Somewhere along the way, however, some of the directions can get off a bit. And when it comes to something so ultimately, so supremely important as our eternal destiny, as our salvation, we want to be as clear and accurate as possible on those directions. I mean, if you get off a little bit on your directions to the Taco Bell or the hardware store, it's not that big of a deal. But you do not want to get off track on your journey to eternal salvation. So we're going to tackle some jargon that is not terribly helpful. It is the salvation shorthand used in contemporary Christianity and broadly within the evangelical world. This is kind of the terminology that gets used with few exceptions. So here are a couple of things, This, this salvation shorthand. The first one is this. Ask Jesus into your heart, right? Or invite Jesus into your heart or accept Jesus. I mean, it changed a little bit, but it's the same essential thing. You need to ask Jesus into your heart. I've heard this preached at revival meetings. I've heard this at, at summer camps, you know, Christian camps. I've even heard this preached at funerals before. Ask Jesus into your heart. Um, very often there's this other component Um, Now, if you want to ask Jesus into your heart, let me lead you in the sinner's prayer. And the sinner's prayer is something like, hey, um, I'm a sinner. I I know that I can't be saved on my own. I know that I need Jesus. I accept you, Jesus, into my heart. Um, So that is really the predominant uh, kind of way in modern Christianity that salvation is shared that the directions that are given to someone who believes they are lost and they need to be saved by the grace of jesus so the second thing there the first thing ask jesus in your heart the second thing about this jargon is is to pray the sinner's prayer now i am not saying that either of these is bad all right praying a prayer that acknowledges you're a sinner praying a prayer that says, Jesus, I, I, I need you, I want you in my life, I can't be saved apart from you, that's a good thing, I guess. Um, asking Jesus into my heart, I mean, yeah, I need, I need you more than being in my, I need you to own my heart, I guess, but no, there's nothing necessarily bad about those things, and they are saying that they're not in the Bible, so they're unbiblical in that sense, but they're not anti-biblical, I mean, it's not like you're doing something horrendous if you do either of those things and when it comes to the issue of following Jesus we want to be clear that we aren't just doing things our way but that we are doing things according to his directions does that make sense we want to be following his directions so while those things may not be bad and they may not be anti-biblical, there are a couple of, I think, big problems here. The first problem is this. Neither of those is found in the Bible. (laughs) Neither of those is found anywhere in the Bible. Now, in the New Testament, we have dozens of stories of, of men and women coming to Jesus, of people becoming followers of Jesus, disciples of Christ, dozens of stories, and in not any of those stories do you find anybody preaching or teaching saying, hey, now you need to ask Jesus into your heart. Or now's the time when you need to pray the sinner's prayer. None of them, okay? Conspicuously absent from all of those accounts in the New Testament of actual people just like us who want to come to Jesus and find salvation. Um, Where did those come from? Well, I don't can't tell you exactly when it started, but I can tell you George Whitfield, a British preacher in the 1700s, um, began to use these in the Great Awakening there in in the UK, in these revival meetings that he had. I can tell you that Charles Spurgeon, a very powerful and effective preacher here in the United States, um, used that as well, those concepts. Um, Now, here's the second issue with that. So not in the Bible. The second issue is this. Both ideas tend to treat salvation as a point in time, okay? A moment, a happening, an occurrence, an event, kind of a transaction between you and God rather than as a posture for living, okay? Salvation as this transformational process, not just a moment, but a process. And you may have heard somebody say before, I remember when I got saved, When did you get saved? I have heard ministers talk before, you know, at the church service the other day or this big revival we had, this many people got saved. And I think that language can tend to convey something kind of inaccurate, that salvation is more about a transaction than it is about a transformation. It's something I I get. Um, Salvation is much more than a one-time happening in someone's life. It is a new story that they become a part of. You are saved, but you are living out the salvation story in Jesus Christ. So, this isn't exclusive. Hear me this on this. It's not exclusive to ask Jesus into your heart or pray the sinner's prayer. It can also be about baptism. I mean, you can treat baptism as a transaction as well. I mean, for a long time, as a missionary, as a campus minister, for years, I thought, if I can just get this person into the baptistry... If I can just get them under the water, mission accomplished. Job well done. Finish line crossed. But that's not accurate, is it? In fact, Jesus Himself reveals to us baptism, it's not like finish, crossing the finish line, it's not an arrival point. Jesus says in John chapter 3, it is a birth, it's a beginning, it's, it's a start, it's, it's a launching. Yes, you're saved. By the grace of Jesus Christ. Live in that salvation. Grow in that salvation. Not a transaction as much as a transformation. The beginning of living out this new identity. This saved identity as a child of God. So here's something. I don't know. For me, this is kind of helpful. Just language, I think, can make things muddy or language can make things clear. So let me ask you something. In America these days... Is it more common to think of people who believe in Jesus, is it more common to think of them or to call them Christians or disciples? Absolutely, we use the word Christian more. I mean, that's what we think of. Christians are doing this, Christians are doing that. In the New Testament, it's it's different. The, the language is different. Christian, this is on your outline this morning, the term Christian is used in the New Testament. Okay, it is used. It is used two times in the New Testament. The term disciple is used 296 times. Now, I think that that tells me quite a bit, doesn't it? The preferred way in the New Testament to talk about us, to talk about people who believe in Jesus, is to talk about them as disciples. That doesn't mean you have to stop using the word Christian. But disciple carries a lot more freight, if you will. It's a lot more powerful of a word because you can be, this idea in our culture of a Christian is, yeah, I mean... That's the religious group I most identify with. I mean, if you're going to give me some boxes, am I Muslim? No, I'm not Muslim. I'm a Buddhist? No. Uh, I'm not ready to say I'm an atheist yet. I I mean, my my parents and grandparents were Christians. Yeah, Christian. It can be more that, like a religion that I identify with. And so Jesus can be, I can be a fan of Jesus. Okay? A disciple is a follower of Jesus, Much more than just being a fan of Jesus. So I think that language is helpful to us, all right? As we think about in the Bible, what does it look like for someone to believe on the name of Jesus? It looks like following him for the rest of their life. So um, for a disciple, for a disciple, salvation is a lot more than a one-time event or transaction. It is a state of being. It's who I am. It is what I am living from, living through, living out of, the salvation that I have in Christ. And so, our text this morning comes from the first sermon ever preached after the gospel was, shall we say, Complete. okay? After Jesus died, was buried, was resurrected, the very first sermon that was preached was on a religious holiday, Shavuot or Pentecost, in the city of Jerusalem with pilgrims from all over the Jewish world and everybody that gathered. So think about all these people showing up in Jerusalem, all the hotels are booked, people are sleeping out in tents and stuff like that. They are all talking about one thing, They're talking about Jesus. Because weeks before, Jesus, this promising rabbi who had been performing miracles, who had been teaching this beautiful stuff about love and about God, and he had been executed by the Romans, okay? And there were these wild rumors that were traveling around That he had been raised from the dead. In fact, there were about 500 people who claimed... More than we have in this room, or maybe not as many we have in this room, but a whole bunch of people who said, I saw him. And not just like a vision or a spirit or kind of a ghost-like figure floating above the ground. No, they had had breakfast with Jesus. In one case, Jesus had cooked the breakfast, okay, um, they had hugged Jesus. They had spent time being taught by Jesus after everybody had seen him dead. So he had told them, hey, before he was crucified, I'll be killed, but on the third day I'll be raised. And then there are hundreds of witnesses. So just say this. As, G, as Peter is standing up to preach a sermon, man, you could hear a pin drop. Everybody wanted to hear what is Peter going to say about all of this stuff that everybody has been talking about. So let's start in Acts chapter 2 verse 32. Here's some of his sermon which Luke has recorded for us. Peter preached, "God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact." Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit that has been poured out that has poured out what you now see and hear. So a little background there. They were seeing and hearing a lot of amazing stuff, all right? There was a visual display of the power of God, tongues of fire. There was the sound, auditory experience of of rushing wind flowing around. The apostles were preaching in all of these languages that they shouldn't be as Galileans as basically hicks. They shouldn't have been able to speak all these cosmopolitan languages. So people were like, what is going on? Peter's like, this is the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. Be convinced. Believe this with all their hearts. Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, Lord and Christ. Lord and Messiah. Lord and Messiah. Peter replied, or rather, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them, he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about three thousand were added to their number that day i love that story i especially love that part where they're like peter what do we need to do and peter says ask jesus into your heart i like that part of the story oh no wait i'm sorry it's the part where he says let me lead you in the sinner's prayer that's no obviously he doesn't do that, nor do we see that anywhere in the New Testament, okay? Um, (laughs) And and what we see there, though, is a gorgeous account of what it looks like for people to decide to follow Jesus, to to decide to accept that cadis, that gift of God that is eternal life. And the first thing we notice is, this is the first bullet point there, the first thing we notice is this. The people made a heartfelt decision. I mean, they were cut to the heart this wasn't just an intellectual thing they were moved the people were cut to the heart they made a heartfelt decision to trust in Jesus that's the one who's gonna save us Jesus and what he accomplished through his death through his burial and through his resurrection Jesus was preaching about things they had seen with their own eyes weeks earlier. Jesus being crucified by this Roman execution squad. Jesus, this miracle-working rabbi from Galilee... ...who had been crucified just weeks before in Jerusalem. This had happened very publicly and also publicly his resurrection. About 500 people saw that happen as well. And many of the people who, who Peter is now preaching to... Just weeks earlier, they had been some of the very same people demanding that Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, that he send Jesus to be crucified. And now they're listening to Peter, and the Holy Spirit is breaking their hearts. And they want to know, what do we need to do? So they heard Peter preach, And they're ready to respond. The masses had rejected Jesus before, even after he performed all of these miracles and wonders. They had rejected claims that he was the Messiah. They had rejected claims that he was the Son of God, sent to save the world. Now now they realized they were a thousand miles off course. They are like, how do we turn around how do we how do we come back to God? We were off. And this brings us to the next thing here in verse 37. It is about repentance. Verse 37 and 38. The people repented. Okay? The Greek word here is, here is metanoia. The people metanoid. They repented, agreeing with God about their sinfulness and the need to reverse direction and the desire to move toward Christ. I have been headed this way. Thank you for telling me I'm going the wrong direction. I am coming back. Metanoia means to turn around or literally to change your mind. Um, So they ask Peter, what do they need to do? He says two things. He says, repent, turn around and be baptized in the name of Jesus. So 3,000 people, more or less, 3,000 people are like, yes, we want to turn around. We want to be baptized in the name of Jesus. So there you have the next bullet point. They they reenacted the gospel through baptism in the name of Jesus. If you've ever wondered, what's the deal with baptism? Why does God want us to get wet? You know, what's the deal with that? It is a reenactment of the gospel. Remember, weeks earlier, Jesus had been crucified. He had had died. His body had been buried. And he had been resurrected from death. That's what baptism is. It's not just getting wet. It is reenacting that Crux of the good news, the death, burial, and resurrection. You are saying goodbye to your old life. The old me needs to die, needs to go away. You are buried with Christ in the waters of baptism and you are raised to a new life, powered by the forgiveness you've experienced and powered by the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's good stuff right there. Um, This reenactment thing, I'm not making this up, okay? This is. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter six, verses three and four, okay? How we reenacted the gospel when we were baptized. He talks in Colossians 2, chapter 12, how, uh, no, chapter two, verse 12, how we were baptized in the likeness of his burial. So it is a reenactment of the gospel, powerful symbol of the gospel, a participation in the gospel. And anyway, On that day of Shavuot, Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, when the people heard Peter preach, they believed in Jesus and the gospel. They repented, and they joined their lives to the gospel story by being baptized. Interesting thing, Old Testament stuff here. Um, Remember when God delivers Israel from Egypt. They had been slaves for hundreds of years. They had cried out to God. God sent this deliverer, Moses, Remember what God did when the Egyptian army was behind them and was about to crush them and was about to keep them from entering into the promised land? God opened the waters of the Red Sea. And Paul is going to tell us that was essentially the baptism of Israel. They crossed through the waters and they entered into the promised land. Okay, it took about 40 years after that, but that's another story. But that was symbolic of them leaving the old life and entering into the new world that God had for them. That's what baptism is for us. Crossing through the Red Sea and entering into the promises that God has for us. Finally, and this is very important, because a lot of times we just kind of stop here. We got you to the baptistry or we got you to... Uh, raise your hand and accept Jesus, however a particular group does it, we tend to stop there. But this is so important, and we see it in full color display in Acts chapter 2. The people followed Jesus. They followed Jesus by sharing his love through their generous behaviors, their attitudes, through their service, through their worship. You see a new community. You see a new people living new sorts of lives. And it is incredible. They weren't, look, they didn't just get their ticket punched in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. Woo, I'm saved. Now I'm just going to kind of hang out and wait for Jesus to come back or call me home. It's all good. No, they realized I'm saved. Now I'm going to live in this new identity. And you see it on display starting in verse 42. Look at what happens. After all these people are baptized in the name of Jesus, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to, look at all this that they're doing now, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. I like it, how much they eat together. We still do that, okay? Um, To the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. Many signs, wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need, taking care of each other. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread. There they are again, breaking bread. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So the disciples who were saved By the name of Jesus, they started hanging out together. They started sharing meals together. They started praying together. They started devoting themselves to the word of God. In their case... The teaching of the apostles, okay? That's what we now have for us in the New Testament. They, were list- they wanted to grow. They wanted to learn. They wanted to go deeper and deeper and deeper in this salvation story. They wanted to be more conformed to the person and, of Jesus Christ. Um, and so they're, they're doing all of this together. And they're sh- look at the generosity in that story. I mean, it kinda, it's, breath- it's almost a little bit scary. I mean, they're selling things off. Um, They're giving to people who are hungry or widows or people who are in need. There's this amazing generosity. All of this to say, salvation was more than a moment. It was a momentum that the Spirit of God created in that community. It was not just a transaction. Thank you, God, for salvation. It was a transformation. Now, God in His goodness... He gave us this marker. There is a marker. There is a point in time that we can remember, that we can reflect on, that we can point back to when we fall short, when we have our doubts, when we're going through a a difficult time. It is that marker of baptism. And God generously gave us this symbol that we can look back to and remember and rejoice in and remember where our salvation has come from. Remember why we are saved. And we can point back to that gospel story that we joined our lives to. Now, I know a lot of pastors, I know a lot of preachers, great folks who have built their ministries on having people you know, pray Jesus into their heart, ask Jesus into their heart, or pray the sinner's prayer. And I'm not here to pick on them. I'm not here to, to start a fight. I'm not here to say, hey, we're right and you guys are wrong. It's not about that. I'm trying to say somewhere Along the way, your GPS started giving you some kind of sketchy directions there. Okay? That's what I'm trying to do. The Lord is saying, ask Jesus into your heart. That sounds good, but I I never said that. I never said that. So, look, Sabine Moreau, the lady from Belgium, look. When she got hopelessly lost, a thousand miles off course, if someone had come along and knocked on her window and said, hey, um, you're headed to Brussels, well, you're kind of going in the wrong direction. If somebody had done that, would that have been a mean, judgmental, unkind thing to do? No. That would have been an incredibly helpful, loving thing to do. And that's what we're trying to do here is just say, hey, why don't we get back to what the Spirit reveals for us in the Bible? Clear instructions, clear directions. We can, there are dozens of examples in the New Testament. We can look at those and say, I want my story to match up with those lives that were being transformed in the New Testament. Those are my people. That's my Lord. And I've got all I need there. I don't need to add anything to it. And hopefully, we're doing folks a favor when we do that. Now, let me confess something. Get back to driving and directions. Okay, first of all, Isla, I think I'm pretty good at directions. I think I do a pretty good job. I do. There have been times I have really gotten lost. I mean, really, really lost. And yes, dads, I'm like a lot of us. I don't like to stop and ask for directions, okay? Um, What I tend to do, the times I've really gotten lost... Um, it's happened because what I tend to do is at some point I'm like, well, I've gone this far, you know? I don't want to turn around now because maybe I've been right the whole time. I mean, if I turn around now, I may be almost there, and so I go another 10 miles, right? I go another hour, and that's how I really get myself into trouble. I kind of feel like I've gotten to the point of no return, and I just kind of keep on going. In Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people were told lovingly, courageously, and boldly by Peter, you're going the wrong way. And they said, tell us what we need to do. Tell us where we need to go. And that's the story that we have. And if you have not come to faith in Jesus Christ, this could be your day to metanoia, your day to turn around and begin living out the salvation story that is free, that is given to you by God's grace. Um, You can turn around and commit the rest of your life to following Jesus. Will you be baptized into his name before? Will you repent? Will you join with the family of believers and begin living out this love story that we have in the New Testament, the love of Jesus for human beings? It could be, you know, it could be that your conversion story doesn't match up with what we're finding in God's Word. It matches up with something God never actually said or instructed. Um, And maybe you just heard something that a pastor said at a a revival or a church meeting or a a summer camp or something. Um, And we would love to talk with you about that, help you understand more about what the Bible does say. And you can even be baptized right here, right now, today. Um, We would love to help you take care of that and begin living out the story of salvation with Jesus Christ. It could be another point along your journey, not that everything you've ever done is wrong or has been awful and you haven't loved Jesus, but to say, hey, why don't we just make a turn here and come back to what God has actually revealed to us, and that can be a step along your faith journey. We would love to help you. Maybe you just need prayers today. However, you need to respond to the directions God has given you through His Holy Spirit. Do that as we stand together and as we worship.